Hi, my name is Ellis Tucci. Today, I want to tackle a pretty fundamental ethical question, your answer to which has a pretty severe influence on your political beliefs. Is it ethical to withhold a foundational building block of life, something we all need to survive, based on someone's ability to pay for it? Does someone have more of a right to life because they have a higher bank balance? What things in this world do we have a right to? And if something's a right, then how can you be charged for it? Today's episode is going to be about all of those things and more. This week, I want to talk about one of the most evil companies on this planet, Nestle which thinks that human beings do not have the right to water. If you like this episode, then subscribe, leave a rating, or consider becoming a contributor on Patreon. Special thanks for this week's show goes out to Claire Smith, the show's newest patron. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Ellis Tucci, this is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 90, The Waters of Life. So, before I get into answering those questions, let me go over some of the reasons why you should hate Nestle. And keep in mind that, yes, I'm talking about one specific company here, but these are offenses that aren't limited to Nestle. These types of crimes are really abundant in the corporate world, and the culprits include everyone from Coca-Cola, Dow Chemical, Chevron, and Cargill, to Starbucks, Prada, FIFA, and Goldman Sachs. According to the World Benchmarking Alliance's 2019 report on corporate human rights, which is uh, linked in the description along with every other source on this episode, on a scale of 1 to 100, with 100 being excellent human rights practices and 1 being a blatant disregard for them, only Seven companies out of the 200 evaluated scored higher than a 70. Two-thirds scored 30 or lower. And just under one quarter scored 10 or less. So let's talk about Nestle. As one of the largest food companies on Earth, one of the many things that Nestle makes is chocolate. But before you bite into your next Crunch Bar or Kit Kat, you should know that the chocolate Nestle used to make it was produced by child slaves in Côte d'Ivoire, a small country in Western Africa. Of course, this news eventually got out, and because of this horrible violation of international law, Nestle got sued. That case is actually, right now, bouncing around the Supreme Court. The legal basis for the suit comes from what's called the Alien Tort Statute, which allows for lawsuits based on violation of international law. Slavery, of course, is an egregious violation of international law. All of the case details are, again, linked in the description, but one thing that you really should know is the defense that Nestle's lawyers are using. In the case, Nestle USA Incorporated versus John Doe, their defense is that you can only sue an individual for slavery, and they are a corporation. 
corporate victory in this case would establish a legal precedent where corporations can't be held responsible for violations of international law. In 2015, Nestle also admitted to using slave labor in Thailand to acquire fish for its fancy feast brand of cat food. In 2008, Nestle was one of the companies involved in the Chinese milk scandal, where manufacturers of baby formula intentionally added melamine, a chemical additive found in plastic, to their products, resulting in the hospitalization of 54,000 infants with kidney problems and the death of six from kidney stones. Speaking of baby formula, in the 1970s, Nestle adopted an extremely aggressive marketing campaign for its formula targeted at poor countries with a small proportion of English speakers. They marketed their formula as the perfect substitute for breast milk. Of course, it was not. After giving financial incentives to doctors and nurses in order to use and recommend the product, Nestle's baby formula was given away for free when mothers were in the hospital. New mothers, of course, took the recommendations of their doctor, and by the time the free samples of baby formula were no longer free, the lactation process had been disrupted, and mothers could no longer breastfeed their children. But it doesn't stop there. This was a product marketed to poor non-English speakers, but the formula itself was labeled only in English causing mothers to use it at a rate that their doctor, who benefited from the sale of the baby formula, recommended. Nestle also completely failed to convey the correct way for mothers to use it on their own, neglecting to mention that mothers in areas without filtered water had to boil it first, a mistake that caused thousands of sicknesses and a number of deaths. Of course, this wasn't limited to the 70s and 80s, and the scandal cropped up again in a new form in 2018. Nestle also has an extremely direct hand in climate change, not just through the carbon emissions created through its production, but through intentional deforestation and rainforest destruction brought about by the production of palm oil, a critical ingredient in a great many of their products. As a matter of fact... In 2018, the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, which is notorious for being too soft on violators, actually suspended Nestle from the group due to the incredible scope of its violations. I mean, when we're talking about Nestle, they've got an absolute laundry list of evil shit on their record. When Ethiopia was in the midst of a terrible famine from 1983 to 1985, uh, which ended up killing about 1.2 million people, by the way, uh, the government needed to devote everything they could to food relief. That didn't stop Nestle, though. In 1975, the previous government of Ethiopia nationalized all foreign-owned businesses. In the mid-80s, Nestle acquired the Schweisfurth Group, which had at one time owned a stake in the Ethiopian Livestock Development Company. As a result, Nestle, with an annual revenue of $65 billion, demanded $6 million in reparations from the poorest country on earth for a cattle farm that was nationalized by a different government 10 years before Nestle ever became involved. 
Keep in mind that Ethiopia was also in the midst of one of its worst famines ever, and according to Oxfam, that money could have fed a million people for a month. So if you came into this episode hating Nestle, then there's probably a chance you knew some or all of that. And if you didn't, and you haven't developed a seething hatred of Nestle in the past, oh, I don't know, nine minutes, then honestly, I don't know what to tell you. I don't think that there's anything that I could say that would convince you otherwise. But anyway, I suppose it's about time I got to the thing that this episode is about. The big question. Should water be commodified, or is it a public good that we all have a right to? Unsurprisingly, Nestle believes that the idea that water is a human right is pushed by, quote, extremist NGOs. The former CEO of Nestle, Peter Brabach Lemath, during the filming of We Feed the World, a documentary made during his tenure as chief executive, said, quote, The one opinion which I think is extreme is represented by the NGOs who bang on about declaring water a public right. That means that as a human being, you should have a right to water. That's an extreme solution. Nestle makes approximately $7.8 billion a year off its bottled water, so that's no wonder they think you don't have a right to it. And make no mistake, after Nestle realized how badly they fucked up, they did an about-face and reassured us that yes, you do have a right to water. But that's just lip service. It's fundamentally incompatible with their actions. Rights, they're not transactional. You don't have to do something in order to receive your rights. If you have a right to water, then it must be available to you for free at point of service, which does not mean that it's free, but rather that the cost incurred by getting you that water is distributed in another way, one that doesn't involve you buying a 24-pack of Nestle Pure Life. If you think that the right to water is some extremely fringe lefty position, then you should know that as of July 28th, 2010, the United Nations recognizes the right to water as a fundamental human right. But if you're not a huge fan of the UN, then that's probably not the most convincing argument. If that's you, then let me ask you a question. Do you believe you have a right to life? Can you exercise that right to life? Can you survive without water? If we do have a right to life, then how can we not have a right to the things that we need to live? For example, if you style yourself as pro-life when it comes to abortion, then do you also believe that those theoretical children have a right to things like food, water, and housing, the things that people actually need to sustain life? Or do you just want to control what others can do to their bodies? You have a human right to water, as well as the other things that sustain life. But those rights aren't observed in reality. As a matter of fact, in practice, those rights are perverted. 
Last week, I talked about how the commodification of housing means that empty, unsold luxury units for the ultra-rich will almost always be built instead of much-needed, affordable apartments for the poor. That kind of dynamic also translates into this situation. Corporations like Nestle not only don't think you have a right to water, but they're stealing public water from cities and towns just like yours and selling it back to you at a massive markup. I'm sure my American listeners are familiar with the undrinkable lead-filled water in Flint, Michigan. Residents there pay the city around $180 a month for water they can't use, for water that'll give them cancer. But it turns out there is clean water in the area. In Everett, Michigan, Nestle pumps enough water out of the ground to satisfy the average annual usage of 100,000 people, which they then promptly put into plastic bottles and sell back to the people of Flint, the population of which is uh, 95,000. Of course, to add salt to the wound, just just guess how much Nestle pays Michigan for those pumping rights. $200 a year. What the residents of Flint pay in one month for water that will kill them. And on those pumping sites that Nestle paid pocket change for, they can't even abide by the poultry rules set out for them, overpumping by millions of gallons, destroying ecosystems, draining watersheds and rivers. And it doesn't just stop there. There's, there's this scene at the end of the movie, There Will Be Blood, that plays out in a similar manner to this. Now, the central conflict of the movie is between an early oil baron at the start of the 1900s, and a young preacher who has, for years, refused to sell his oil-rich land. Now, at the end of the movie, Eli, the priest, now desperate, wants to sell his oil rights, but the psychotic Daniel Plainview, adeptly played by Daniel Day-Lewis, explains that his land is worthless. Plainview couldn't secure the rights to that specific piece of land, so he just pumped all around it. Eli's oil had seeped into Plainview's wells. The land he thought was the ace up his sleeve had in reality been pumped dry years ago. As Plainview puts it in a particularly terrifying scene, I drink your milkshake. The exact same thing happens when pumping water. It's not like mining coal. When you pump water out of the ground, particularly a large amount of it, more will seep through the ground into that new space. What that means is that water pumping doesn't have a concentrated effect, but instead spreads out over a massive area. So when Nestle steals tens of millions more gallons than it's permitted to pump from the Strawberry Creek in California, then that means that the entire San Bernardino National Forest begins to suffer. Or when, during a drought, Nestle continues to overpump aquifers in Sacramento, then that means that the drought gets worse for everyone. 
I can talk about the specific sins of Nesli for hours on end, but like I said at the beginning of this episode, this is not an issue that's limited to one company. There's over a thousand bottled water companies in the world, and they more or less have the same mission, to deny you your right to water by buying it all up and selling it back at a premium. Directly charging for something necessary for life dictates that there will be people who can't afford it. That's what the market-bearing price is. And that's exactly what's happened. Over 790 million people don't have access to decent water sources. In no small part because the market has dictated that the only ones who are deserving are the ones who can pay. What's the fundamental difference between charging for water and charging for air? Not only on the basis of our human need for both, but on the sheer ridiculousness of the idea that something that falls from the sky can be another man's property. Could you sooner own the wind? Lay claim to the clouds in the sky. It seems to me to be an embarrassingly confident assertion that any number of hairless apes could claim that the bounty of nature was theirs and theirs alone. That any man could mete out the natural world in his own apportioned lots, or hawk admission privileges like some perverse carnival barker. In the theory, as living things, we all have equal rights to this earth. In practice, we do not. It's up to us to demand better. Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History. Signing off. You watch a plane flying across a big blue sky. This is a
Yeah.